Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. So this is Gregory Salmieri. Uh, I'm at the Salem Center in the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas. Of course, literally now I'm in my house because we're all social distancing. Uh, the center is conducting a series of video interviews uh, about COVID-19, the pandemic, with experts from different fields. This is my first time as an interviewer, and I'm happy to have with me today Dr. Amish Adalja. Dr. Adalja is a, a practicing infectious disease and emergency medicine physician, which uh, separates him from a lot of the experts uh, commenting on this, even who are uh, physicians, uh, but also is senior scholar at the John Hopkins University Center for Health Security, where he focuses on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. And you all uh, are likely to know him because he's a very frequent uh, commentator on the media. Uh, um, that is, you'll see him on pretty much all of the major news networks. And uh, in addition, he's a personal friend from whom I've learned a lot over the past years about infectious disease and uh, more than I could say over the past months as we've all been making our way through this uh, crisis. So I'm very pleased to be able to have him here and uh, to be having this discussion publicly. I should say it's July 14th now, 2020, and I'm mentioning that because things change so quickly that um, it's worth knowing when when this uh, was recorded. So Amish, I want to dig in today a little more to the the state of your own thinking as it's developed over the course of the pandemic and your impressions of the state of the, the field. Um, there's often in the news and in political debates, we hear like the experts say, or the science tells us, or doctors say this. Uh, but of course, science doesn't speak with one voice. Uh, there are certainly a lot of open questions earlier in the pandemic and still now about different scientific uh, matters. There are going to be uh, disagreements sometimes about the biological facts and even where there's agreement about the, the facts, about um, different policies, uh, because it's only not only direct uh, questions about biology that go into setting wise policies and wise medical decisions. So you're one of the few people, well, let's start by, could you um, maybe say a word or two about your overall perspective that you bring to this crisis and how you differentiate yourself from other people thinking about it uh, in terms of the background you bring? Sure. So I work at the Center for Health Security, which is the, the premier think tank focused on infectious disease emergencies. And I've been there since I was a training infectious disease physician and spent all my time thinking about pandemics, emerging infectious diseases, hospital preparedness, thinking about how to predict these things and, and working specifically to try to understand what it is about certain pathogens that allows them to cause a pandemic, what allows them to slip out of control and how do we prevent that? And at the same time, I work clinically doing infectious disease, critical care medicine, and emergency medicine. So I'm constantly toggling between what's going on in the real world versus what's going on uh, in the theoretical standpoint or research standpoint. And our think tank is very focused on policy, trying to fix policy gaps that might exist. So we're really interested in how to make these things, not just as academic exercises, but how do we get better the next time that we face a pandemic? So that gives you a kind of a unique perspective. And I really came to light during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic when I was first at the center, thinking about all this from a theoretical standpoint, and then 
in the hospital a couple of hours later dealing with it and understanding what the implications of policy are right there in front of me because I'm facing that same type of uh, the same type of decisions that or the same types of scenarios that we're predicting from a theory standpoint. So that, that I think is different that most people in my field tend to be maybe not clinicians or have decreased their clinical time, but I'm still probably about 50% or more uh, clinical. So everything that I see and say on television, uh, I myself am also living it. Excellent. Thanks. Um, so as uh, let's focus for the moment on the part of your being part of the world that was preparing for uh for this and thinking about what we should do in in case of a pandemic passing could you tell us a bit about the the state of thinking in in this field as of a year ago or as of before this pandemic hit what were were there different schools of thought about what we should do what were the accepted kinds of interventions what role did for example social distancing and other non-pharmaceutical interventions play and in particular what were the questions that were on the minds of the specialists before they had to face them in the context of this particular uh, pathogen? So most people had a general framework that we would want to have very aggressive diagnostics and then use kind of basic tried and true public health principles to keep this at bay, looking to a virus that likely emerged from China or some other country where we've seen pandemics emerge from before, likely spread through the respiratory route and be something that there was no vaccine for and no antiviral. Most people thought that was the case. Most people believed that this would be an influenza virus that would do it because that's traditionally what's caused pandemics. And we have our eye on multiple different avian influenza species that, that actually cause mortality rates that are much, much higher than what we're dealing with now, talking about like 50, 60 percent uh, mortality rates. We were looking at that, uh, although most of us knew that even the 1918 level pandemic, the one to two percent mortality would be debilitating uh, to the country. Most people had just had thought about coronaviruses as, a, as an important regional threat. We didn't know that it would be, a, we, it was on a list of pandemic pathogens, something that we thought we had to prepare for, but we always put influenza much higher because SARS and MERS were two precursor coronaviruses that didn't really spread that efficiently from person to person and were easily uh, halted with simple public health measures. Most of us thought, you know, social distancing is something that we would recommend as a voluntary measure, as something that we knew would decrease interaction between people and decrease the force of transmission. It wasn't really in anybody's playbook to have this be something forced. Obviously, school closures and things have been debated, and they did do school closures during 2009, but uh, full uh, stay-at-home orders were not something that were, were basically on the list of things that would happen. We thought that we would be able to do very precision-guided public health, which is the way that public health interventions usually are. You're, you're really targeting those people who are infected because you know that they're infected, you know who's infected, and you know which activities are likely to contribute to spread and which ones are not. And that's mostly how people thought that this would, this would happen. Uh, but that would be, you know, in January or so like that, that's how we thought this would happen. But clearly things didn't happen uh, that way. Were there known failing points? Like if I had asked you and others in your field a year ago, uh, supposing we had a, a, a pandemic pathogen, uh, where are the stress points going to be in our system? How, what would you guys have said then? And how is that fit with what's been observed? The biggest stress point people would have said a year ago is hospital capacity, because we knew that hospital capacity gets stressed even during a severe flu season. So if you take the 20, uh, 
18 flu season, there were hospitals that were almost in crisis. And we know that the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, although it wasn't very severe, was difficult for many hospitals. So that's something we've always talked about, that hospital capacity, because hospitals don't, they don't operate with a major margin just based on the industry. They like to be completely full and they have only certain number of licensed beds and they want to fill all those beds and they want to use all idle space because this is an expensive proposition and hospitals, most of them don't really operate in the black. They're always operating in the red. So we knew that hospital capacity and the ability to do surge would be very limited. Uh, and we also knew, I guess, that the per that that we had issues with, with personal protective equipment and, and the strategic national stockpile being replenished and being up to date. We were worried about that. We were worried about the number of mechanical ventilators, all of those, which all kind of fall onto hospital capacity. That had really been the issue that most of us had identified for a long period of time, knowing that hospitals were woefully unprepared for, for anything. And we've seen it multiple times with, with many types of surges that happened after Superstorm Sandy, for example, in New York, uh, where hospitals went offline and other hospitals got crushed by the, the volume. Most of us thought Most of us Most of us thought diagnostic testing was going to be something that was a challenge, but not something that was insoluble or not solvable because we have the technology to be able to do that. Many people thought that that private industry, as well as major national labs like Quest and LabCorp, would be able to absorb this. And, and uh, that, I think, is a little bit surprising how badly it went. We knew there would be some difficulties, but no, I don't think anybody fathomed that now, sitting in July of 2020, that we're still talking about diagnostic testing problems in the, the most powerful country in the world. I want to talk more about the testing problems um, a little bit later. I, when we're talking about how prepared we were and in what different areas, Maybe we should differentiate um, the United States in particular, certain cities, New York. I know you were on a, a group that was assessing the New York hospital system and um, and other countries. The world is there. Is there anything to say about the the states of preparedness of different countries and maybe different regions of America? The U.S. was definitely considered the most prepared because we had all the resources. We have a, a very uh, robust healthcare system that has a lot of resources and a lot of people in it and a lot of technology. And, and a lot of money uh, versus other countries. But I, I would say that um, I was part of a team that went to Taiwan 10 years after SARS. Um, sadly, Taiwan is not able to be evaluated by the WHO for their preparedness because they're not a member of the WHO. So uh, my colleagues and I went there and I really saw a, a very, um, I, would, I guess I would say very complex, a very complex and intricately designed system engineered to, to detect any kind of infectious disease emergency and treat it very, very seriously. Even something as minor as mundane as dengue fever, they take it very, very seriously. And from the top level, they have epidemiologists at the highest level of their government. So this is something that they take, they, they got burned during SARS. They're right next to a hostile power that, that has biological weapons, uh, that, that has uh, a lot of issues with avian influenza viruses. So they prepare all the time. And I was just very, very impressed that this was something that they made a national priority, that they thought about this happening, that, that it was not a matter of, of uh, if this would happen, it would be when it would happen, and they were prepared right from the get-go. And, and you saw this whole system that we evaluated jump and spring right into action, even in, in 2019, actually, late December, they were already in action, ready for a pandemic, where most of us dawdled for, for months and months. So I do think there's definitely differences in states of preparedness, with Taiwan being a standout. South Korea as well, again, the commonality there is hit with another coronavirus outbreak, that time the MERS outbreak in around 2013, where the whole government basically had a, lot, they, they had a loss of confidence in the government because of 
how badly that was handled, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome outbreak, and they vowed to make changes. And it's clear that they, they did make changes because they pounced into action as soon as they had, had cases. And uh, I think that, that there is definitely something to learn from those experiences. And even though the U.S. on paper looked like the, the, the most formidable uh, country for a, a pandemic, it's actually turned out to be one of the worst. It's also, in a way, maybe a hopeful sign because they were burned by earlier experiences and improved. So uh, there are precedents for countries uh, building this kind of apparatus um, in that case. So let's turn now to what you were mentioning, the early days of the pandemic. Uh, I want to know a bit about your thinking um, early on and uh, your perspective on the first moves that were taken by different uh, uh countries both at the time and and your thoughts in retrospect. So when did you personally first become aware of this disease? And when did you first expect it to be a pandemic or at least an international problem? I first became aware of it, I think, in the early days of January after the WHO notification that there was a novel coronavirus initially was ascribed to a seafood market. There was about 41 patients. And that's what we had. Uh, The fact that it was a novel coronavirus piqued everybody's ears because we were worried about SARS and MERS. And the fact that it was happening in China, and we know that China has always had transparency problems when it comes to infectious disease outbreaks. I mean, the, the whole story of SARS, why SARS circled the world and and and, uh, and killed some and, and killed as much as it did, even though it was only a ten, it was a ten percent case fatality. It didn't. It wasn't completely shattering the, the world, but it was because China did not report their cases, and the other countries could not get. Uh, could not get prepared early enough. So this was something that we thought about, at least I thought this was something that was significant. And we were seeing a lot of transparency from China early on, the sequence of the virus, they notified the WHO very quickly, and it all seemed to be clustered to a seafood market. It was a coronavirus, there was 40 cases, and they all said they came from the seafood market, which to me was a little bit suspect. And I kind of memorialized some of my thinking on my blog about this, but they that seemed to be a little bit much for a seafood exposure or an animal exposure. It suggested that maybe there was some limited human-to-human transmission going on. We didn't know. We didn't hear about deaths. And we know that coronaviruses, this was, good, this was the seventh human coronavirus that was discovered, and four of them are part of our common cold repertoire of viruses, and some of them are very, very mild, but some can cause severe disease as well in, in immunocompromised patients. So we still kind of, I was trying to fit it into that. And when it started spreading human to human, and we got confirmation that this was sustainably transmitting from human to human, there was no way that I thought that this virus had only been in China, that had only, was only going to remain in China. Because a virus like that, to me, that efficiently transmits from the respiratory route is not going to be containable. So focusing all efforts on people that were from China, I thought was likely to be not fruitful. I thought that even though this was recognized in late December, there probably were cases going on for some time because we know that the clinical symptoms were indistinguishable from cold and flu, and this emerged in the middle of the cold and flu season, so that there likely were cases that were missed and likely in other countries. And I think that that thinking at least has been borne out when you look, for example, at sewage supplies from Italy, sewage uh, sampling from Italy, that there were cases already there in mid-December. There was someone diagnosed in France who had no travel outside of France around Christmas time. So clearly this virus had escaped from China uh, long before uh, we even had, took notice of it. And I think that was something that um, I think that I, that I was right thinking about that just based on what I knew about what viruses were. I, I thought that the case fatality rate numbers were a little bit skewed when we started to hear about these deaths in China because there was a lot of severity bias in the data because people were testing only those who went to the hospital. And I, saw, I thought this was going to fall below 1%. And I do think now, if you look at the WHO and CDC guidance, uh, they are now clicking around 0.6, which is, I think was a number that I kind of, 
I, I kind of guesstimated, which seems to be pretty accurate for the infection fatality rate. I remember you're guesstimating that number early based on the South Korean um, data. So, so the, the, the fact that it got out so quickly and, and you had expected it to, so it was expectable to, what does that, um, what are the implications of that for, for travel ban policies? Clearly we can't rely on them or expect them to, uh, to do everything or to save us, but did they help? In particular, was America better off than Europe because um, Trump banned travel from China when some European countries did not, or did that make no difference? Okay, do you have a way of telling that? I, my bias is to think that it probably didn't make much of a difference because I'm, I'm not a, a fan of travel bans, and I don't think that with a respiratory virus that had already left the country of origin that you could have really stopped it. And what I think there was, what would happen was you get a false sense of security amongst public health people, among people who don't know that much about this saying, well, it's taken care of. We've got to travel. It's only in China. We have a travel ban from China. So therefore we don't have to spend time fortifying our hospitals, getting diagnostic testing ready. We just got to focus on this small trickle of people that are coming from China now because of the ban as a place. So I don't think it is. It was effective. And we had no way of knowing if it was effective because we couldn't actually do diagnostic testing. So even if you're going to grant that it is, that it was effective, how do you actually know that or measure that? The only way you can do that is through diagnostic testing, which we could not do uh, very well back then. So I don't think that this is uh, this was the answer. I don't think travel bans are, are, are the answer, and they often cause cascading retaliatory travel bans and make it paradoxically harder to get resources. And we know that those travel bans, they had to have special flights to bring supplies from China to here. All of that was could have been avoided. And I do, I do think that this was just something that has a lot of face validity to the general public, but really has no validity when it comes to the science uh, behind it. And, and it's clear that this didn't stop this virus from coming because at the same time, we had multiple travelers coming from Europe that were seeding uh, the New York City area with the, with the strain that had uh, landed in Europe. And, and we know, I gather, that the New York City outbreak was caused by European travel that occurred even prior to the China travel ban or at this, before we would have known to ban Europe if we were trying to handle it by then. Exactly, yeah. There was already cases already seeding there. And you're talking about the travel ban that occurred you know, already after there were cases in the United States and undetected chains of transmission that were going on in Washington and likely Santa Clara County, California as well, and probably even New York, maybe even other parts of the country. There were one-off cases that were going on because there really was no ability to test and no kind of... Uh, no kind of thought pattern that this is something that could be in any city based on what we, you know, based on what the guidance was, despite what we knew about viruses of this sort. So let's now talk about this period when we're first starting to have a response. Um, February, March, particularly March, um, even January. What were your expectations personally? And what's your sense of what people in your field expected for, um, what we would be able to stand up domestically as a response, particularly in terms of testing, uh, tracing, isolating. What, I mean, clearly every everyone's view now is that there's been some massive failure in this area. How much of that was expected, could have been expected, and how much of it, where did that come from? Oh. My expectation was that there would be guidance that says, you know, this is something that we have to think about when you have a compatible clinical syndrome, despite where a person may or may not have been, that you might want to rule out the usual suspects because we're in the middle of flu season and influenza was still spreading. But this is something that you need to consider. But we got a CDC testing protocol that basically said you can only test people that came from China and only people that had lower respiratory tract disease. 
If you were to make a program to actually allow undetected chains of transmission to occur, that's what you would say, because we knew it was already outside of China. And then it's baffling to me that they didn't allow you to test mild cases because those mild cases are contagious, actually probably more contagious than the ones that are getting hospitalized because those people are getting put in isolation in a hospital, whereas someone who's mild just goes back about their life because most cases are are not going to really interfere that much with people's activities of daily living. So none of us really suspected that. And we were, I, I was pretty vociferous in the beginning saying this testing protocol is wrong. It's not something that that's going to do anything except for predictably increase the number of cases here until they become uncontrollable by case contact tracing. Because if you're only case contact tracing the severe cases, you're missing the entire the, the, the entire, um, it's, it's like an iceberg. You're just seeing the tip of the, the iceberg in the hospitalized cases. If it's maybe 2% or 5% get hospitalized, the other 90-something percent are out there infecting other people. So you have this this scenario where you have no idea who is infected and who isn't infected, who is who is who poses a risk, who doesn't, almost by design. And I don't think that anybody realized that that would happen so badly uh, and, and that would be executed. So, And it's still to me baffling how that kind of guidance got became codified and how people really adhere to it. And, and I can I, I can vividly remember arguing with people over this patient needs to be tested because it's likely COVID. And, and uh, it's just, it was just impossible to get the test because it was controlled by that protocol, which all the states then adopted. So, so this is- There are arguments you're having as a practicing physician with a patient in your office who's showing symptoms. They're in the hospital, actually, yeah. even hospitalized patients. Yes, as well as I'm, I'm t- saying the same thing in the media, and I'm on conference calls saying this doesn't make any sense what we're what we're doing, and uh, and it continued to be that way for a, 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 strong, a long period of time. And at the same time, we were being told by the highest levels of government, including the president, that this was going to go away. It wasn't going to be something that hospitals needed to worry about. And I think that was the wrong message because we wanted hospitals to say, what is your personal protective equipment inventory? How many mechanical ventilators are there? Dust off your pandemic flu plans and think about what you're going to do for ICU surge. What, what's the status of strategic national stockpile? What do we need to replenish? All of that should have been happening in January and February, not March and April. And I think if you would have done that, we would have had a much different course with this pandemic, not only in the economic shutdowns that occurred, but also preparing the public for what was going to happen. And indeed, in February, when the CDC started saying, this is going to be a pandemic, we need to prepare, you need to think about social distancing, it came as a shock. And the woman who who um, talked about that, Nancy Massonier, who's a, a very you know decorated CDC expert, she's been not heard of since that time. So th- this clearly was things that were not, we never thought that this would be politicized to the extent that the CDC would be silenced from actually giving the public expert advice. So, and I think that compounds the whole issue. And I think these are the, these are the important questions that need to be answered is how did this all go wrong and not what went wrong once the task force started, but what went wrong in January, February, and March, that's, that, that's where the key decision points, that's where we lost the battle against this virus. So to what extent were the, the um, recommendations around testing that were, were out, that were active in January and February, to what extent was there a contingent of medical experts, scientists who thought wrongly by your lights and as we've now seen that these were the right protocols? And to what extent was it uh, politicians overriding the consensus of the medical field? I don't think we know the answer to that. I don't know anybody that believed that that was the best way to approach diagnostic testing and, and thought that this was going to have any kind of effect at containing the, the outbreak. I think that this was, this was something that was baffling to many people. And it was promulgated by the CDC. So I think that's an important question is why did the CDC settle on that guidance and what was driving that guidance? Did they think that this was something that they could contain? But I don't, no one has asked 
the CDC director that question directly. Like, this is a, a respiratory virus with a spectrum of illness that spreads efficiently from human to human. How was that protocol likely to pick up the cases at a, at a rate high enough to prevent the country from being disrupted by this? And, and nobody's asked that direct question, which is what I would like to ask the CDC who came up with that guidance. And it, and it to me is completely goes against everything that I've learned from people at the CDC. So I don't know what, where that came from. It seems like there's actually a, a failure of, of science and political journalism here, because that's not one of the questions that we're, we're seeing posed to people and seeing posed to the administration. Uh, was there a contingency of a contingent of doctors who thought this was the best uh, procedure and, and uh, why, what was their reasoning or was somehow the medical decision overrided by political considerations? It's, a, it's one of the, the, the biggest questions I have is trying to understand that because that's, if I were to pinpoint the decision where the whole thing went the wrong way, it's that decision because it, it really sets the tone for the rest of the outbreak. Fascinating. So now we're, we're into March and April. We're into the lockdowns, as it's often put, or the restrictions on motion being introduced. I know one point I've heard you make is that what we had weren't lockdowns of the sort that were in China or even in Europe. So how would you characterize the, the policy that was in place in, in California, in New York, and eventually in almost all of the nation? So these were, well, I call them stay-at-home orders or economic shutdowns, where there was a determination made by governors about what was an essential business or an essential activity and what wasn't. And they were very broad compared to what you saw in, in Europe and what you saw in China, where basically there was the full cessation of economic activity that occurred, where, where when they started to open up, they kind of got to where we were at the height of our stay-at-home orders. And I think that that was because ours were explicitly designed not to drive the cases to zero, but to preserve hospital capacity, because we were very nervous about what was happening in New York City at that time. And, and that's why they were what we call leaky. For example, in the United States, you could go outside and exercise whenever you wanted. You could do what you, you could walk your dog whenever. But in England, you had certain hours where you could walk your dog or exercise. That was not what we had here. And I think that's, that's good that we didn't do that because we, we have a different you know, understanding of individual rights and liberty. Um, although I think that um, the, the shutdowns as they were, were very damaging to people's lives. And but I think it's important to remember that the reason why we have these surges now is because we, even at the height of our stay-at-home orders, we were still getting, you know, 20,000 cases a day. That's not, a, that's not what, what they saw in other countries. And that was by design. So I don't think that people should be surprised that we're having more cases in other places because our shutdowns, and, and indeed Dr. Fauci just said this yesterday, our, our shutdowns were not driving cases to zero. That, that's why we have cases now. It's a simple biological fact that that's, what, that's the... the the policy that was pursued here. And I think that that's an important thing to, to remember that we were even, even when we were using kind of the most aggressive public health measures, they were still targeted. And if you look, for example, in my home state of Pennsylvania, almost 10,000 exemptions were granted for things that were deemed non-essential to become essential. So I think that this is, um, you know, a misunderstanding of what the, these, these stay at home orders were meant to accomplish. Hope, but, but, the, but that being said, during that period of time, states needed to invest in the infrastructure to be able to actually deal with the, the increase in number of cases that they would get as soon as those stay-at-home orders lifted. And clearly, that's not the case in, in states like Florida, Arizona, and Texas, and even California, uh, which is a state that was pretty aggressive uh, with the shutdowns. One of the, the earliest stay-at-home order was in the state of California, and clearly, they can't keep up with contact tracing or diagnostic testing. So this tells you that you know, this is a, a virus that is going to be 
a major challenge that we have to deal with because it spreads so efficiently and has the spectrum of illness where many people don't know that they're sick. So there was a, um, a spectrum of views about how to handle this, uh, including whether to have shutdowns or restrictions on motion stay-at-home orders, uh, what level of them to impose. We saw a range of different types of them across different states, across different countries. Um, you mentioned uh, Europe's being stricter than, than uh, in the United States. You were, in general, for more freedom of motion, less imposition of this. Um, how do you, can you say something about the state of the arguments within the field and your thinking about, uh, about how this should be handled and any ways in which that thinking has developed over time? I, I think I've always been an advocate of precision-guided public health, that you just can't have a blanket order on every activity. And it was clear that some of these stay-at-home orders had very silly components to them. That, For example, in Michigan, you could not travel to your second home if it was in Michigan, but if your second home was in Ohio, it was fine to go there. So there clearly wasn't science back in some of those blanket types of orders. And I knew that there was only certain activities that were leading to this spread, maybe congregation in large groups, indoor settings, churches, uh, maybe bars, that's where you're seeing transmission occur. And it wasn't the fisherman that's out, by, out with one or two friends on the lake that's causing this. So I didn't think that that was the right way to do it. And I think that there was a paradoxical backlash to that. And that if everything is so is, is permitted, is not permitted, then when you do open up, everybody, and I've said this in media articles, turns 21 all at once. And, and there's a lot of irresponsible behavior because people didn't get hit with it. They didn't get hit hard with the pandemic because of the stay-at-home orders. And then all of a sudden, they're out there... Uh, behaving as if there was no pandemic. So I think that my thinking is that it's always been that you have to direct activities at what at what's causing it. And it was very difficult for some governors. I don't envy the position they were in because they had no ability to know who was infected and who wasn't. There was no case contact tracing. So we didn't have all that epidemiological data to know exactly which activities needed to be shut down, which ones did not. But you could you could come up with that maybe after a two to four week period of time knowing that this is what's what was causing it. And I did I do think some states started to do that. They started to say, okay, we're going to permit drive-in movies or we're going to do this. And I think that's usually though you you start from that you you kind of build your way up to the restrictions instead of putting on a blanket order and then peeling away what what was going on. But I don't think that I think the only way that you can understand that is the governors were scared. They had no tool except for that one. And they, they did not want to be blamed for, for, for lives being lost based on their inaction. And I think it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of courage to say, okay, we're going to peel this away or we're going to do it very nuanced, especially when there was a political narrative going on and you had differing opinions from, from the federal government. But my thinking always has to be, it's always going to be the least restrictive. You, you, don't, you don't put typhoid Mary on the island automatically. You give her a chance. Are there any states or countries? Uh, I know the if we talk about Taiwan and South Korea, um, a lot of their success had to do with, as you described before, the the testing and how much they were prepared beforehand. But are there any countries that you know didn't stand up a, an excellent testing response right away, or any states um, that did go into some kind of uh, shutdown or mitigation measures, and that you think did a good job of it? or a better job than the others that you would want to put forward as an example? No, I, I, I don't think there's any great, great examples. I think most countries got it wrong. Most places got it wrong. I would think, you know, when you look at, I think what I, everybody's eyes are on New York State, because obviously they were hit very hard. And they've been reopening, and their percent positivity of tests, which I think is a very important indicator, is around 1%. 
And they've not had these surges. And I don't know. It's, so there's two things that I have a hypothesis. One is because New York State was hit so hard that this has really scarred the people and they're behaving in a very different manner than other states. And that could be partly true. And the other thing is, is that when New York, when they started to quote unquote reopen, one of the criteria was you have to hire X amount of contact tracers that you act, they actually push them to actually build the public health infrastructure in each of the regions of the state. Not, a, not any, any, I, I don't know that any other state had an actual metric other than New York. So I'm very curious to see if New York sees any kind of unmanageable upsurge. They're going to get more cases, but will they actually get to the place that some of these other states we're hearing about is? And I think that's key because I think to me, it's going back to the bread and butter public health contact tracing. And if you don't have that in place, you're not going to be able to keep these outbreaks from, from spiraling out of control. When people talk about less restrictive policies, they often think about Sweden and the plan that was talked about in the UK before the Imperial College report uh, came out. Could you comment on on those policies, differentiating uh, what you'd advocate from, from that kind of a policy proposal? So I think you have to separate Sweden, some parts of Sweden. Sweden has very good public health laws that are really well written and give people a lot of guidance on what can and can't be done. But I think that with a virus like this, if you're going to pursue that type of policy, you have to realize that there are going to be vulnerable populations that are going to get sick and that are going to die. And you can't just, you, you want to couple it with some amount of testing that's going to delimit that. And you want to fortify the nursing homes and, and uh, assisted living centers. And they didn't quite do that. So they, they, while they might have had okay public health, they had good public health laws and they had a sort of, it wasn't kind of a, an obviously, it wasn't a thoughtless policy. It, it wasn't coupled to the right interventions to make it an effective policy. So if they would have said, okay, we're going not, we're going to have voluntary social distancing. We're going to, and they did, they did ban mass gatherings of a certain number, which were too much of a risk. Then you have to be able to actually still diagnose these cases, test them and contact, trace them and isolate those individuals. And at the same time, fortify the nursing home so that you don't get this virus spreading in there where it can kill at a very high rate. If you would have done that, you might have seen a different approach in Sweden, more of a model approach. And now Sweden's chief epidemiologist is saying that they, they did it for nothing because they actually ended up with the same economic losses because people are not going to go outside and not going to partake in the same activities if they're worried about their safety because they don't know who's infected and who isn't. And I think that's the important part of this is that it's not just business as normal. That's not the alternative because people are still going to refrain from, from activities if they're nervous about going outside, just like they won't go outside during a hurricane. You seem to be returning over and over to this theme of the the essence of a proper response is getting the testing capacity and the um, uh, up to speed. What happened during the stay-at-home order, the restrictions on motion uh, here? Part of the goal was to build capacity, and that, I, I take it, was hospital capacity, but also testing capacity. We had the president saying numerous times that, you know, there are plenty of tests, We, but not just the kind of... Um, Bloviating. There were also cases where there were doctors on and uh, p- different people in the industry talking about how testing capacity had been scaled. Um, what is the state of testing capacity now? Uh, why is it not sufficient, um, at least in, in some parts of the country? We're definitely doing a lot more tests in July of 2020 than we were in March. Maybe over 700,000 tests per day are being done. But the and capacity is much better. Many hospitals, even small community hospitals, have the ability to test on site. But what the problem is now is that it is still very difficult if you're an outpatient, somebody that's not needing to be in the hospital to get a test. 
and you may sit in, in a car for eight hours at one of those drive-through test test places. And what's happened is that there is still some scarcity in terms of or limited supply of reagents. So it's not just the test kits, it's the supplies to run the test. And some of that is being run by the White House Task Force. And they're prioritizing hospitals as they should be to get this for the sick patients. And there's still a problem for if you're an outpatient with mild illness of getting this test run quickly. And, and it is being rationed, that, that reagent, and, it, and it's being prioritized for certain people over other people. And I think that's what, what the problem is, that we still don't have a proper supply chain of that reagent to allow enough testing to be done. And I think that's why we have to start moving to alternative types of testing, like antigen testing, and we have to figure out what this problem is. But that's going to continue to plague us. We can't. There's a there's a statement that we need to live with this virus, and I agree with that. But we can't live with this virus if you don't. The only way that we're going to be able to live with this virus is actually if we have some ability to know who's infected and who isn't, so we can we can actually live. And, and I think that's the that's the problem that we have to, to fix. And I think they, they really have to fix the reagent problem and allow people to be tested just like they are tested for HIV right now, just at the drop of a, a hat you can get an HIV test. You cannot do that with this uh, coronavirus test yet. The, the trouble America's facing, or the United States is facing, getting enough reagent simply a, a function of our size, that we're such a large country? Or is there, why is it, do you have any insight into what makes this such a challenging problem, why it's not been solved? I think it's primarily because there's one supplier that supplier has limited abilities to scale. They're supplying so many different labs, just a, a simple capacity problem. And we are doing a lot of tests and that requires a lot of reagents. So in hospitals that I work at, we can't test for other. I had to test somebody recently for influenza and I had to go through all kinds of bureaucracy because we're saving that reagent, which is the same reagent used for coronavirus tests uh, and not allowing influenza tests to be done. So I think this is this is a problem that, we, that that's probably going to plague us for a while until they get to, get to the bottom of this problem. Is the supply chain global here and affecting other countries the same, or are we hit worse with this? I don't know the exact answer to that. I don't know that, that I do think it is global, and I do think the company, it's Kyogen, is the main reagent manufacturer, that they do have other international clients and other demands that are going on. But some tests do, I know our tests are highly dependent upon it. Other tests may not be as dependent upon it. Uh, and so it depends on what countries are doing specifically. So that's another um, topic that people researching this might, uh, you know, newspapers, for example, might be looking into understanding the cause of this crisis. Are there other tests we could be using? Um, so let's talk now a little bit more. We've already been in this uh, mode about reopening. Um, of course, there were, were a range of opinions as to how wise various states' reopenings were, and they reopened at different speeds. But everyone that I've seen, every medical expert anyway, uh, was expecting, um, you know, more cases as we reopened. Uh, is what we're seeing in states like uh, Florida and Arizona and Texas, and you were saying there would be more cases, uh, is what we're seeing in Florida, Arizona, and Texas the kind of more cases we were expecting, or is this a kind of different sort of surge than uh, we could have or should have been predicting? I think it's a different kind of surge because it's not just that we're getting more cases. We all expected the sheer number of cases to go up, but we did not expect the percent positivity of tests, meaning acceleration of the outbreak to occur. And we didn't think that we would see hospitals get back into crisis. And we're already hearing about hospitals in Miami running out of ICU capacity. Nobody thought we would make the same mistake again in June and July that we made in January and February, but yet again, the same mistake happened. How would you compare the situation in Miami now and in other uh, Sunbelt cities to the situation in New York in March? Um, 
is it the same thing all over again? Is it worse in some respects, better in others? It's hard to make direct comparisons. I think early on we thought it wasn't as bad because the percent positivity of tests was 20%. In New York at the height, it might have been 50% because we had such constrained testing. But now that Miami is reporting that they're in problems with ICUs again, that, that kind of changes the equation. And, and I wonder, you know, is it akin to New York? It's probably not as bad. They're probably able to decompress. We know that they're, they're still doing other surgeries and there's other activities going on um, there in, in some of those places in, in Florida. But I do think it's approaching a New York style. When you start hearing about hospital capacity being compromised, that, that's, the, that's really the theme of the New York issue. And I think that's changed the way that we have to think about these pandem- this pandemic and, and thinking of and these new hotspots, that these are at risk of becoming like New York. We didn't think that that could happen. We didn't think that everything was extrapolable to New York because we thought that people would actually learn from New York and realize you know, we don't have the same population density. We don't have the same multi-generational families there. We don't have the same public transportation. But if that gets outweighed by just inaction and ineptitude with testing and contact, not hiring enough contact tracers and allowing chains of transmission to occur, that's going to wash out any advantage you might have because your city isn't New York City. What are the cities that, you know, sitting today on the 14th of July, you're most, or regions, you're most concerned about uh, the hospital capacity issue arising in Miami is one. Are there others? Houston uh, is another one. Uh, Austin is another one. Uh, some parts of California, uh, so, some parts of Arizona as well. Uh, and then there are going to be other hotspots. We're already hearing like Delaware is having problems now that their percent positivity is above 10% now. And uh, Iowa, all these these places are all, this is going to be the standard in the pandemic, that these hotspots are going to flare. And it's just that hospital capacity is going to continue to be a problem because it's not something that anybody tries to fix uh, other than just surge capacity or, or just kind of building up a little bit, building up ICU capacity by converting beds. Nobody's actually thinking, should we have more beds in a hospital um, that maybe they sit idle um, and we use them for this? And I think that's the that's going to be the, you know, the controlling factor here. And I, and I don't think there's anybody has even, it's not even in the realm of suggestions to say, well, maybe we should increase ICU beds and just leave them empty. Nobody, nobody, it's not what anybody wants to do because of the economics of healthcare in this country. Just anecdotally, I was in the New York area, as you know, uh, living there in February, March, April, uh, in, in, into May, and now I'm in the Austin area. And in terms of the number of people, one or two, you know, people removed from me or activities that would have had to have been canceled because somebody has COVID, uh, there's a lot more of it going on now in my life than was then. In part, that might be just because there are more activities going on now than were there. But I'm more aware of people with it here than I was there. I mean, the same is true for me in Pittsburgh. I have more more of my friends are infected now than they were in the, in the height of the pandemic here. Sorry. I want to ask now about a couple of issues that aren't quite so time-dated as the ones we've been talking about. One thing that uh, I've noticed in your discussions of the virus that differentiates it from a lot of the other medical things I've read, particularly in science journalism on it, or in, like just in New York Times articles or a recent article in Vox, is you get a lot of reporting on what the virus can do. Can it survive on a surface in this condition? Can it be spread airborne, etc.? Um, one thing I've become sensitive to from talking to you is the difference between what the virus can do and what it does do. In other words, what's possible to it and what we should expect to see occasional cases of and what its typical behavior is that that drives the epidemiology of it. Uh, could you comment a bit on, on that distinction and the role it plays in your thinking? I think that what happens is people 
will have an experiment. Maybe an aerobiologist will show airborne transmission or show droplets being suspended in the air. And then that gets extrapolated into, this is an important epidemiological factor we need to consider in our public health guidance and how we treat patients. And I don't, I think they make a leap between what's possible in an experimental setting, what's possible at maybe 1% or 2% of the time, or, or even more so if you're using an experimental cough simulator, for example, versus how, what are we actually seeing on the ground? How are people getting infected? What is the main way? What is the primary mechanism that this is transmitting? And that's what I try to really differentiate because you can find case reports of a lot of things that, that are odd, that the, the virus has some kind of odd behavior that occurs. And it's not necessarily representative of what people do. And I think that sometimes we get very distracted, especially because the media gets very interested in the 1%, but not the 99%. And, and you can get people very distracted by worrying about something that is a rarity versus something that they normally have to worry about. So you've got people trying to bleach their mail or do, what they, do things to their mail, but no, that's not how people are getting infected. So I always say the virus isn't waiting for people to pick their mail up. That's not how it's getting around. It's getting around from people being close together. And yes, there is some there is some risk there, but I think it's very negligible and not something that I would spend much time thinking about. And obviously, you could concoct a scenario where someone sneezes on your envelope and you touch it, and then you get get it. But it's not that's not what's going on in the majority of transmission cases. And just because you can find a surface that the virus lives on in a perfect laboratory setting for seven days that it remains viable, that's not what what normal life is about, and that's not how that's not what we're seeing with our epidemiology. So I always try to put this into the context of what's relevant for patient care or public health messaging, not what's in an academic paper that shows something in the realm of possibility, kind of the 1%, the 1% of what could happen. I'm looking at what's happening 99% and where's the most impact. I'm always thinking about the intervention. Where's my most impact? Should I spend time trying to worry about this thing that happens very rarely, or should I put all the effort into what drop, what, what works for the majority of cases? So if you, um, operationalizing that for an individual, if there's somebody who's, um, you should spend less time, you know, again, depending on your, your particular context and situation, less time sanitizing your mail and more time doing what? Like, what is, what is it that people are doing less of uh, when they're focusing on more um, unlikely risks? So I would say you know, it's limiting your contact with other human beings and trying to stay six feet apart and washing your hands frequently and not touching your face and, and maybe, maybe wearing face coverings as required or, or as indicated in certain areas. That's much more important than figuring out which bleach product to use on your, on your mail. And I mean, indeed, people, we had record numbers of poison, call, poison center calls for people getting, into, getting uh, intoxicant flame, uh, exposures to, to uh, cleaning substances because of this, because it was such a misplaced thing, because the media love to talk about mail being or, or how to sterilize your groceries. And, and there were so many more you know, there's a negative effect of that. If you, if you spend so much time worrying on the 1%, it, it really distracts people away. And then there are actually negative consequences that occurred with all the poisonings. That's interesting. There was a lot of um, media attention on people maybe would, would take Trump's strange comments and it would lead them to drink bleach and such. And I don't know if anyone has, has done that, but you're saying that there's been a lot of danger not people doing something crazy like drinking bleach, but just they have too many cleaners out sanitizing everything and they get it in their eye or something uh, um, and causing problems to themselves that way. Yeah, I mean, definitely they, the people saw tips on how to sanitize and they, they were using Clorox and bleach and that can be, um, that you can be overcome by those fumes and there were record numbers of calls to poison centers over there. Hmm. Um, you mentioned face covering. So I know... Um, there's been a debate about that. There are different uh, 
some people are more pro face masks and different types of face masks than others. Uh, I know you're a little more skeptical of the value of the masks than than some and are uh, more of a fan of the the face shields if I don't if I understand correctly. Could you say a little bit about what the issues are that are being debated uh, about the different types of face coverings and their utility? So early on in the pandemic, there was recommendations, a surgeon general in all caps wrote on Twitter, do not buy, people stop buying face masks, seriously stop buying them, because people were buying them thinking that they're going to protect themselves from getting infected. And there's no evidence that a face mask protects you, because you can get infected through your eyes, the general public doesn't wear face masks very well. But what happened was we started to see these cases where people didn't know they were sick, or maybe they were pre-symptomatic, and they were contagious. So that became this idea, maybe we should put on face masks in order to serve as source control for these individuals who don't know that they're sick. The, the problem I found with that was that these were homemade masks that sometimes are just a bandana tied around somebody's neck. And people don't wear them properly. They stick their nose out. They paradoxically touch their face more. They get a false sense of security and cease social distancing when they're wearing a mask. And then they litter all over the sidewalk with these masks that other people have to clean up, which could be um, infectious to them. So that's what, what my problem was with it. When face shields started to become something in vogue, they offered the opportunity not only to serve as source control, but also to protect the wearer because they also cover your eyes. You don't touch your face as much. They're much easier to comply with. People aren't taking them off and, and every five minutes. They're much, so if you find a face shield wearer, they're more likely to be wearing it correctly than a face mask wearer. And what's happened is this has also now become politicized. We have two camps now. And again, this is going to what can the virus what, what is possible for the virus to do and what does it actually do? And these aerobiologists who have talked about airborne spread and have shown that in some of their experimental studies have said this really negates the benefit of face shields. But it also negates the benefit of people wearing their face mask on their no without their nose in it as well. So I, I think, and you have to think of the, what's the main pattern of transmission and it's people closely talking to each other and drop bigger droplets. And I do think that face shields work in that situation. So I, I'm somebody that does favor the use of face shields. And I think that we have to think about as we move forward, uh, face shields are, are going, face coverings are going to become the norm and it's going to be almost like the, the, the price we pay for reopening because it is, if they do service source control when they're used appropriately, uh, this is something that will make people feel safer and, uh, and, and go forward. But I think that there's a lot more nuance to it than, than people think. And it is not a substitute for the other aspects of social distancing. So you shouldn't get a false sense of security from it. But I think this is, again, going to be something that's completely politicized and in a way that you, you have two factions um, and a lot of acrimony between those two factions. So you say this is going to be with us for a while. The, um, the usual line we hear is until there's a vaccine. Uh, I've now heard m more skepticism about uh, whether there could be, whether immunity is lasting. Can you say anything about the prospects for a vaccine and the timeline? I do think that there's not a biological block to having a vaccine. Many people have, don't realize that we have coronavirus vaccines for cows and for, for bird species that seem to be effective and not have a major problem. So I do think we can get one. How long the duration of immunity lasts, if you need boosters, all of that needs to be figured out. We don't know any of those answers yet. Um, I think the timeline is likely that we'll start to see vaccine, maybe some small batches at the end of 2020 in the best possible scenarios, maybe in the early in early 2021, but not enough to be able to vaccinate a substantial proportion of the U.S. or the world's population. I do think it's probably going to be a two-year period before we get enough vaccine, and it's going to come out in tiers and batches based on uh, people's risks for severe disease. So maybe healthcare workers and, and high-risk individuals will be the first tier to get the vaccine, and then it will move to the general population. 
So I do, but, but I don't think that we're going to see up full, full enough uptake to get the herd immunity threshold probably for a period of two years. So part of, I know we have vaccine candidates that have been shown to uh, be safe and to generate some antibodies. I've heard people speculating about, is it just some kind of regulations or fussiness on the part of people that's uh, making us go through all the trials we're going through rather than charging ahead and giving them to everybody and then we'll, we'll see what works. Why is it, speaking from the perspective of a clinician who would be prescribing these, that it's important to have um, controlled trials uh, before we phase out the vaccine, uh, release the vaccines more widely? Because we don't know how well it works. We know that it's generating antibodies, but are those antibodies effective? Are the antibodies paradoxically enhancing infection like we saw with certain SARS vaccines? in experimental studies that people who have the vaccine or not people, but in a laboratory setting, the antibodies generated by the vaccine enhance the infection. We need to know that. We need to know what the dose is. How frequently do you have to administer this? What are the side effect profiles? And do those side effects occur more in other, in certain, in certain uh, population groups? And, and in those certain population groups, is the vaccine contraindicated? Is, is the risk being outweighed by the benefit? Um, or vice versa. Does it work in pregnant women? Um, what about in children? Do you need a higher dose in elderly individuals? All of that needs to, to be really adjudicated in a, in a clinical trial. And then you also want to know, not only does it work, does it create antibodies, but we talked about them being effective, but how effective are they? Do they prevent you from getting infected? Do they prevent you from getting a severe infection? Do they make you less contagious? Do they prevent you from getting hospitalized? What is the benefit of the vaccine? I think that you're not going to know that unless you do a placebo-controlled trial where you have people that are vaccinated and they're out in the community getting infected versus people that are not and understanding what actually is it doing? Is it preventing, is the infection rate different in the placebo group and the, in the, in the treatment group or is it the hospitalization rate that's different? And it's a, two different types of vaccines. And, and I think that those are important questions you have to know because you're going to be prescribing this to people. And, we want to, and there's multiple candidates out there. There's, I think, five candidates part of Operation Warp Speed and there's probably two dozen candidates in clinical trials. How do the vaccines fare head to head? Which one has a better side effect profile? Which one works better in certain age groups? All of that stuff you can't figure out without doing clinical trials. That's really clarifying. Um, so let me just close by asking two related questions. Um, one is, what do you expect the next year to look like with respect to uh, to this virus? Um, and what recommendations do you have, both for people who might be in charge of policy for organizations and for individuals of weathering this time? I think the next year is going to be kind of punctuated by these periodic flare-ups and multiple hotspots where hospital capacity gets under stress in one place and it moves to another place that we kind of muddle through this in the, in the way that you wouldn't want to think of an infectious disease emergency being uh, handled. And there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of politicization with people on one camp calling this kind of a fake thing, other people being very serious about it, and the truth sort of being that this is something serious, but we have to find a way to move forward. I think that's what, what, what we're going to see. I think that we'll start to get more treatment so that we'll be able to decrease the, the mortality rate of people who get hospitalized. We'll learn more about how to prevent complications and just get more adept. So the, the individuals who get hospitalized are going to start to fare better, and I think they're already starting to fare better. We're getting better at handling nursing homes and trying to, to keep them kind of in a, in a state where the virus is not let in because we've got very strict visitation policies and infection control policies. 
But I, but I think for policymakers and, and organizational leaders, it's going to be very difficult because they're going to get cases. They're going to have disruptions to their workplaces. The, it's going to be hard for them to come up with plans that are not going to get foiled by this virus. It's going to be disruptive. This is what happens during a pandemic that's out of control, that you're going to see many disruptions to your workforce, to what activities you plan, your travel, what, what kind of events you can have. All of that's going to be uh, really bad until we get a vaccine. I think that you know, the, the, for an individual, this is going to be something that they haven't had to deal with probably since the 1960s or maybe even before that, before the antibiotic era, where every time you walk out the door, there's an infectious disease threat looming over you that you can't take the risk to zero. But what you have to do is try and think about how can you reduce the harm that this virus causes you and to people you care about by taking kind of common sense measures, by avoiding very crowded places, by washing your hands a lot, not touching your face, by by wearing a, maybe wearing a face shield and, and thinking about how that every activity you do, you have to juxtapose that to your value hierarchy and say, is this important to me? Is this essential? Is there an alternative way I could do it? And then it's going to be different for each person. And you're going to have to come up with an individual risk calculus. And most people in this country have not had to do that when it comes to an infectious disease. I often you know, draw the example of someone who might live in, in sub-Saharan Africa, that every time they step outside, they have the risk of malaria or Ebola or yellow fever or being bitten by a venomous snake or, or whatever it might be. That's kind of what we're, we're, we're dealing with here. And I don't think the people in the United States uh, are very good at that. They've taken for granted the advances of civilization and vaccines and antibiotics, and, and now we're we're back to what it was like for our grandparents. So the the saying it's it's like what are what it's what it's like for our grandparents has a an element of hope in it. As bad as it is, it's not an unprecedented scenario to be in. Is there wisdom we can recover? I guess is what you're suggesting as to how to deal with this kind of a situation. I do think that we have the. There is a way forward. I don't think that this is cataclysmic. This wasn't the big one. This wasn't you know 65% case fatality rate. Uh, you know I've talked about the fact that we did great things during eras when there wasn't a measles vaccine or a rubella vaccine. So I do think that this is something that we can get through. But it's it's really always been not so much about the virus, but people's reaction to the virus and people taking the wrong actions in response to the virus, whether it's the president, whether it's the, the government, whether it's a governor, or whether it's an individual who's acting carelessly. It's, it's about taking the right actions in the face of the context, that the, in, keeping in the mind the context of this virus being with us, and, and that there is a way to, to, to live with it, but only if we're provided the tools. And government gets good at doing its core function of protecting individuals from becoming infected by just doing, going back to the basics of testing, tracking, and isolating, which they failed to do from the beginning. Okay, well, thank you so much um, for taking the time to discuss this with me and with uh, our viewers, who I'm sure uh, both on the web and I, these videos are going to be used in classes, so who I think will have learned a lot. Thank you again, and thank you for everything you're doing on this. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Policy at Macomb's. 